I'm Ray Suarez, and this is America Abroad. When sanctions failed to stop Libyan President Muammar Gaddafi from slaughtering and terrorizing his own citizens, there was worldwide agreement that something more had to be done. With the support of the Arab League and the United Nations, NATO launched an eight-month operation that helped Libyan rebels to overthrow Gaddafi. Looking back, the operation has been showered with both effusive praise and harsh criticism. Terry Schultz in Brussels takes a look at the lessons NATO learned in Libya. Libyan activist-turned-business consultant Khaled El Mayet knows there are diverse opinions about the results of last year's NATO operation in Libya. But for him, the most important measure is how little fear is felt on the streets of Tripoli now compared with a year ago or with the 42 years of Gaddafi rule before that. It was a, a great success. It was very much needed and the Libyan people were very appreciative for the action NATO took and the UN took. The 28-year-old El Mayet grew up in London, a life that was outwardly comfortable but emotionally on edge as his family, friends and his own sense of self as a dual citizen were split between Britain and Libya. As the early sprouts in Libya's spring were being crushed by the Gaddafi regime, he and other members of the Libyan diaspora sent humanitarian assistance, desperately hoping for international protection for those resisting the regime. And everyone was so scared because we all, we all saw that radio speech from Gaddafi where he said, we're coming for you. And we will hunt you down one by one in like rats in your cupboards. Zenga, zenga. Zenga, zenga. The phrase Zenga Zenga, Arabic for alleyway by alleyway, would become a catchphrase, even a jingle for the opposition. But at the moment the Libyan leader issued the threat in February 2011, it was a death notice. El Mayed actually thinks that language helped convince permanent Security Council members Russia and China to abstain in the March 17th vote rather than veto Resolution 1973, which authorized all necessary means to protect Libyan civilians. vote is happening now on that uh, no-fly zone at the UN. The result of the voting is as follows. Ten votes in favor. Zero vote against, five abstentions. The resolution is adopted as... A tear came down from my eye because I was so relieved that something was going to get done. And then what felt like moments later, it might have been a couple of hours, I can't remember, the French are suddenly blowing up this huge army that was rolling into Benghazi. And it was one of the best moments, it really was, you know, the excitement through all the Libyan people at that time. It was actually two days later that the U.S., Britain and France began airstrikes on Gaddafi forces that were about to enter the opposition stronghold of Benghazi. Benghazi residents had been told by Gaddafi they would get no mercy when he came to kill them, a plan foiled at the last moment by the Western attacks, which were met with enormous relief by Benghazi residents, welcomed by celebratory gunshots. Under fire back in Washington for getting involved in Libya while still tied up in Iraq and Afghanistan, President Obama knew he needed to convince his own war-weary citizens to support the initiative he himself had been lukewarm about in the beginning. Here's why this matters to us. Left unchecked, we have every reason to believe that Gaddafi would commit atrocities against his people. Many thousands could die. A humanitarian crisis would ensue. The entire region could be destabilized, endangering many of our allies and partners. But Mr. Obama also made clear to allies the U.S. did not want to maintain the lead role in this operation. 
In a little more than one week, NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen announced the 28-member alliance would take over command of Operation Unified Protector. NATO will implement all aspects of the UN resolution. Nothing more, nothing less. There are critics who say NATO did far more than the mandate allowed. The Russian and Chinese governments, which, remember, hadn't actually voted for the resolution, just hadn't vetoed it. Moscow was particularly vocal about its perception that NATO operations were going beyond protecting civilians to taking sides between combatants. Russia's acting ambassador to NATO, Nikolai Kochunov, explains. Alliance openly supported one of the parties and acted as if the resolution was a legal base for facilitating a regime change. It was not obvious from the very beginning, but I think that those who planned that had that in mind. Martin Butcher, an arms control advocate who authors a blog called NATO Monitor, is even more blunt. He says while he supported the initial military intervention to save Benghazi under the United Nations norm of responsibility to protect, he believes that concept was soon stretched to the breaking point by the ambitions of certain allies. NATO acted as the air wing of the rebels rather than as a neutral UN force. Uh, I don't think NATO as an alliance went in with a conscious policy of regime change. I do think, although I you know, can't prove with documentary evidence, that the UK and France went into this wanting to overthrow Gaddafi. They pushed the bounds and, and their NATO allies didn't push back. But U.S. Ambassador to NATO Evo Dalder vigorously disputes any suggestion NATO chose the outcome of the conflict. He says the fate of Muammar Gaddafi was in the hands of Muammar Gaddafi. On day two, he could have stopped the attacks and taken his forces and put them back in barracks, and he would have remained in control, and the NATO operation would have ended. But because the Libyan leader kept on fighting for almost eight months, the opposition had time and space to organize an advance under NATO cover. During that period, France also decided unilaterally to give arms to the rebels, giving ammunition to critics who questioned how that could be justified while the alliance was in charge of enforcing an arms embargo. Faced with these questions, Dalder's answer doesn't change. NATO acted within its mandate. It did so on day one, and it did so until the last day, 222 days later, when this operation ended with the civilians of, of Libya protected uh, against a regime that was no longer attacking it. We do not believe we changed or altered or expanded or in any way went over the mandate that the UN Security Council in Resolution 1973 voted on. We have a fundamental difference with Russia and China over this issue. Recently, a classified NATO report on lessons learned in Libya was leaked. The shortcomings cited won't surprise anyone who's heard U.S. speeches to the Allies in recent years complaining about the disproportionate reliance on U.S. capabilities and resources. In Operation Unified Protector, that meant a lack of experienced target analysts for precision bombings and of intelligence reconnaissance and surveillance aircraft. For example, even with the U.S. contribution, the alliance had only about 40 percent of the electronic interception aircraft it would have needed. Author and former German diplomat Dieter Detke says Europe needs to get it together yesterday. Without the United States, Europe could not have done it. And that should be the most important lesson to learn, that Europe has to focus on its own capabilities. And that's a big issue. That's a large uh, question. Frank internal assessments since the Libyan operation ended October 31st have prodded NATO allies into purchasing the first aerial surveillance system, five Global Hawk drones produced by Northrop Grumman. 
Efforts to establish the first European air-to-air refueling fleet have begun. It's a good start on lessons learned, Dalder feels. The challenge for NATO is to make sure that we're not only doing that in one or two areas, but that we also maintain the investments in our defense capabilities here in Europe so that down the road, NATO could maintain the ability to fairly share in the burden to conduct military operations. That's a question that can't be answered today, but will require continued investment today in order for NATO to remain capable tomorrow and the day after. Martin Butcher says Dalder's positive assessment is too narrowly focused on military aspects, which did largely go well. Butcher says lessons learned must include what he feels is political fallout from the Libyan experience, guaranteed resistance at the very least in the UN Security Council, the next time some countries call for the responsibility to protect, and others hear only regime change. Some examples of this, the Syrian situation in particular, are already demonstrating such difficulties. Where does the UN go from here with a concept that has been damaged by what happened in Libya, but in some circumstances is an absolutely essential concept and NATO should be looking at that, the UN should be looking at that and saying, yeah, how can we learn lessons from this and not repeat those mistakes? But back in London, Khaled El Mayet's Libya looks bright. His brother Ibrahim has moved back to Tripoli and they've started IE Consultancy for the many companies wanting to get in on the Libyan market. As for the people now, we're seeing great things. There is so much ambition and hope from the Libyan people. The young people are very excited about having a, a potentially good life and they'll do everything they can to try and embrace that. Embraced on the internet with millions of hits, hateful speech turned hip-hop. Lyrics and lead vocals by Muammar Gaddafi. Digitized from that infamous monologue, threatening killings from alleyway to alleyway. Zanga Zanga. A reminder of where Libyans were a year ago and who won't be there in their future. For America Abroad, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels.